0: Into God's presence. Just going to read some verses from Isaiah chapter 6, uh, very famous verses. We read that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you for that reading that speaks of Isaiah and of the way that he met with you in all your glory. And of the way that that touched his life. The way that he felt he could do nothing other than respond to you. Lord, may that be true of your people gathered here tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is uh, Pentecost Sunday today. I don't know if you know that. i got any trouble for not acknowledging it properly this morning. But it is. It's that Sunday in the church year that's set aside for the church to celebrate and to remember. God's gift, God's given to the church of the Holy Spirit at the birth of the church. Recorded for us famously in Acts chapter 2. And so understandably I've been thinking a fair bit during the week about, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I've been looking around, doing some thinking, trying to kind of decide just what might be an appropriate topic to mark, to look at on a Sunday such as this. And I began to look around my, my bookshelves and various titles began to stand out for me. Books like The High Cost of Holy Living, The Liberty of Obedience, and that famous book of daily Bible readings by Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. And immediately as I looked at them, the thought then came to me that these books written a number of years ago say something about an emphasis that was at the very heart of Christianity among earlier generations. But that sadly, and even more so, I would say, tragically, is by comparison largely missing from the Christianity of today. And to be clear, what I'm talking about is holiness. The fact that God calls his people to be holy, to bring glory to him, To point to him by living lives that are separate from sin and lives that are positively committed totally to his service. Lives then that are truly Christ-like lives. And that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he enables us to be holy. That he empowers us, he provides us with all the resources that we need that we might be holy. Now, you see, Christians of earlier generations did have a concern for holiness. They did. At times, sadly, they allowed this, though, to to mutate a bit into things like, like legalism, where their practice of Christianity degenerated into a little book of rules and regulations that were focused not on the, the big issues of Christian living, where the Bible is so clear, but rather on secondary issues, on side issues, on issues that might, in fact, be different for different Christians, depending on our character, our temperament, on the culture we live in, on our strengths and weaknesses, areas where we need to be led, then, by the Spirit. Instead, though, they developed their own little book, ...of rules and regulations... ...where the the focus... ...and often I believe unintentional... ...but where the focus... ...was not that we might become more like Jesus... ...but that we might become more like them... ...by living like them. However... ...Christians of earlier generations... ...did have a concern for holiness. And let's be clear... ...many of them did live lives of standout holiness. They did, by their lives, point to Jesus. They did bring glory to Jesus. And I know that, that many of us here, that we can remember tonight Christians like that and that their memory is still an inspiration to us. But you see, today, well, too often we hear people saying, you know, we don't find Christians like that anymore. And I have to say that though there are one or two prominent Christian writers who are, are sounding out still the call to holiness, yet it does have to be said that there are few, and that by and large this is a forgotten emphasis. But you see, this is a problem. It is a big problem. Because the heart of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, as Acts 1 verse 8 suggests, is to send the church out in mission as witnesses to Jesus and so bringing glory to Jesus. That's what it says. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And then central to this, a major aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to enable us to live the kind of life, the kind of holy life that does bring glory to Jesus, that enables us to be effective in mission. You see, the heart of the ministry then of the Holy Spirit isn't the gifts of the Spirit, isn't the miraculous, though I wouldn't want to ignore either of these, but the heart of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is mission. And central to this is holiness. That God's people might be a holy people. That we might personally have a passion for holiness. So if this is not there, if we aren't living with that kind of active desire for holiness, a desire to grow in holiness, then we have got a serious spiritual problem. So what then is in at the roots of this and how can we at least begin in some way to deal with it? Well, let's begin by looking at the roots of the problem. And my conviction is that this is simply an expression of one way in which the church of today has been taken captive by the prevailing spirit, by the dominant philosophy of the age and culture that we're a part of. Because, you see, the facts are that we live in the most self-centred, experience-oriented, pleasure-obsessed age in all of human history. People today are looking out, first and foremost, for number one. And they don't try to hide it anymore. They brag about it. Because, you see, society today tells them, tells us, that this is the right thing to do. This is the way to live. And as part of this, they are looking for as many feel-good experiences as they can get. Because, you see, it's felt that it's these that prove that they are really living life as it should be lived. It's these that prove that they're getting their share of what life is all about. Now, you see, I do believe that we find this parallel almost precisely within the church of today in that, as we said, too many Christians today don't seem to be concerned primarily about what they can give back to God in gratitude for all that he's done for them in Jesus. Their first thought isn't about living the kind of consecrated, positively committed life that, as we said, holiness is all about. And nor is it about serving, in Christ's name, their community, And their church. Rather their first thought. Often it seems their only thought. Is what can I get out of this? What can I get. Out of my relationship with God. My relationship with my fellow Christians. With the church. And usually too often. The way that the value of all of these different things is measured. Is in terms of. What are they doing for me? What are they doing to make my life a happier, more comfortable, more pleasurable experience? Now here I want to say, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with a Christian who's enjoying a happy and a satisfied life. No, what I'm saying is that there is something wrong when a Christian makes their personal attainment of these things the primary objective, the main objective priority of their lives. You see, if these things come along as we live a life focused on Christ's glory, as our first thought is pleasing him, then that is great. That's wonderful. But these kind of things that put me and my pleasure, my life, center stage, should never be the first priority for a Christian. And do you know when this best shows itself, if this is in fact the reality of our lives. I'll tell you, it's as things so often do. It's in our times of crisis. It's when things go wrong in our life. Because first of all, those who are living constantly, looking for what they can get, those who are living for self, well, you see, with this kind of emphasis, so wrong at the heart of their lives, then it's almost inevitable that someone with this kind of life focus, this kind of outlook, this kind of self-focus, they will feel as if everything's always going wrong for them. Because life is all about them. And so anything that touches their life, anything that affects their life in the smallest way, is exaggerated and blown totally out of proportion. But when things do go wrong, What do people who are living like this do? Well, you see, instead of seeing their experience as something we can expect, living for God as we do in a fallen world, instead of in this, looking to their relationship with with God to gain insight into why this is happening and to find grace and strength through Him and in Him that will take us through it, instead of that, they begin blaming Blaming anybody, blaming everybody, even if they've got the courage, blaming God Himself for their life circumstances. So, okay, that's what I believe. So often lies in at the roots of our lack of a desire for holiness. What I want us to move on to look at is how do we change this? How do we develop a desire for holiness? How do we develop a true desire for holiness where it belongs, right in there at the very heart of our spiritual lives and right at the heart of our church? Well, here I want to use the example of Isaiah and that famous biblical passage to bring just a few suggestions to you about how we might go about this. For there are three things <laughs> what supplies, about Isaiah's vision of God's holiness that I want you to notice and take note of here. First, that in this vision, Isaiah went to where he knew he could find God. Yeah, Isaiah went to where he'd met with God. He went to where he'd experienced God previously. That is, he went to the temple. He didn't perhaps, can't be sure, go there literally, physically, but certainly spiritually. Certainly, in terms of his his memories, of his mind, Isaiah went there. Isaiah was taken there to the temple. Verse 1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and seated up, high and exalted, sorry, and his robe filled the temple. So then this this vision of God, this revelation of the holiness of God, centered around that place where in the past, he and the people of God had experienced the Lord in mighty ways. And I think that's significant. And I think that's the way that God so often works. That it's where we've known God. It's where we've experienced God in the past. It's in ways in which God has worked in our lives in the past that it's in these places, by these means, that not exclusively, but that so very often God comes and chooses to work in our lives again. Now, to bring that right down to the the life experience of the average Christian, I believe that for many of us, it's so often in familiar places. It's among familiar people. It's the church. It's within the church community that we've maybe worshipped in, been involved in for many years. It's there that we can meet with God again. And it's through familiar things. Say God's word that he's used so powerfully in the past to speak into our lives, or at the communion table, where there we see laid out before us symbols that communicate to us so clearly and powerfully the holiness and the love of God. So often it is in these places as we are open in our hearts. It's through these things, things where we've met God, where He's spoken into our lives, that God again wants to come to us powerfully and to rekindle in us a desire for holiness to rekindle our desire for more of him. So in this light then, it always saddens me when I hear about Christians who are going through difficult times in their life, maybe a tough period, and who choose to do the very opposite, who seem to think that it's a rest from these things, that it's staying away from Christian fellowship, staying away from worship, even from God's word, from God himself, that it's a rest from these things, that in some mysterious way, they seem to think will spiritually revive them. But you know, that's the very opposite of what the Bible actually teaches. Hebrews 10, 25 and on from there, says, let us not give up meeting together, as some are inclined to do, but let us encourage one another, and all the more, as we see the day approaching. In Psalm 119 from verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? That is holy. By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do let, let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now I want to be very clear here. It's often far from easy to do this. When life is going wrong, when life has become dark, and when God seems so very far away. It's not easy to keep on worshipping. It's not easy to keep on reading God's Word, to keep on praying. But you know what? This is what God calls us to do. He calls us to this kind of committed, dedicated discipleship. And God chooses to revive us in the person and power of the Holy Spirit, he chooses to come and to revive in us a desire for holiness by meeting with us in his time in familiar places and by coming to us through familiar things. Second thing I want to point out to you about Isaiah's, or from Isaiah's Isaiah's example, is that he spent time in the presence of, of God. And it doesn't actually specifically say that in this passage, but it's clear from, from the wider teaching of the Bible that before they were actually called to prophesy, before they were spiritually anointed by God for that ministry, that all of the prophets were godly men. They were men who had a heart for God. They were men whose lives were open to God. And so they then had these tremendous experiences of God. They were then used in incredible ways by God. But again, all of this emerged out of years of devotion. It came out of years of committed searching and seeking after the Lord. You know, too many Christians today, though, want to reach the heights of spirituality in an instant. Too many want God in some kind of moment of intense spiritual experience. We want God to lift us to the heights. They don't want to work for God. They don't want to wait for God. But I tell you, it doesn't happen like this. True holiness, depth spirituality... Grown to know the Lord in which we catch something of a vision of His holiness, His majesty that then awakens in us a desire to be holy. This is a lifetime affair. We will have significant experiences of God along the way. Yes, we will. But these are not the whole story and they are certainly not the real story. No, the real story is that holiness does not come In an instant. Holiness comes within the context. Of a life of day after day commitment. And seeking after the Lord. The final thing I want you to notice about Isaiah. And his experience of God's holiness. Is that as a result of of this. He committed his life to the service of God. Verse 8. Then I heard the Lord saying. Whom shall I send? And who will go for me? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You see, that is the sure and certain sign of the woman or of the man who's truly caught that vision of God in all of his awesome holiness. It's not an airy fairy spirituality, it's not a constant seeking after personal spiritual experiences for primarily our personal benefit. No, rather, it is a committed willingness. It is a wholehearted desire to give our lives, to give all that we are, to sacrificially serve our God. You see, that's the mark of those who truly sought after God and have caught something of a vision of his holiness that transforms their life. Now, for me, one of the greatest examples of what I'm talking about is, is C.T. Studd. Now, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, he was a missionary in, in China first, then in India, and finally in Africa. And he always went to where the need was greatest. And he was actually the founder of WEC, the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, which is been such a big part of, of Margaret and Robbie's life and of the life of this church. Now, C.T. stood that he was a truly remarkable man in every way. But the story of his journey into mission is the most remarkable thing of all. For you see, he was a, an England cricketer and at the very early stages, if you like, of his career but he was outstanding. In, 19, in 1883, sorry, to the cricketing annual said of him when he was only 21, it said this of him, it said, for the second year in a row, he must be accorded the premier position as an all-round cricketer. And some years have elapsed since the post has been filled by a player so excellent in all three departments of the game. You see, he was the I don't know, the Ian Botham of his day, or the guy now Stokes, whatever you call them, if he'd been around today, he would be getting offered million-pound contracts to to play in the Indian Premier League. But you see, just at the moment when it seemed as if his career was gathering more and more momentum, he gave it all up and went to the mission field. You can imagine the furore that that caused. And in addition to all of this, Stud was the son of a very wealthy father with brothers who were also well-known sporting celebrities. But you see, this is is what had happened. This is what led to this, just to set it in context. Years before this, as a result of a promise made after one of his racehorses won, Stud's father, to keep a promise, went along to hear D.L. Moody, and he was converted and later all of his sons were converted, but C.T. Studd backslid. One of his brothers, though, George, he became so ill that it was thought he was dying. And as he stood by his brother's bed, C.T. Studd talks of the thoughts that went through his mind. And they were these. Now what is all the popularity in the world worth to George? What is all the fame and flattery worth? What is it worth to possess all the riches in the world when a man comes to face eternity? And a voice seemed to answer Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But then he goes on The Lord met me again and restored to me the joy of his salvation. I went to work for him and I began to try to persuade my friends to read the gospel and to speak to them individually about their souls i cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to jesus i have tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can bring but i tell you that all these pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy of saving that one soul on his 25th birthday stud received 29000 pounds from his father's estate Something that I believe that was given to each of the brothers when they reached that particular age. That sounds to us maybe like a pretty good birthday present today. we be quite happy with that. But let me tell you that in today's terms, that would work out at just under four million pounds. That's a birthday present. He gave away 25,600 pounds as a result of reading the parable of the rich young man who refused to give all he had to the poor at Christ's command. And the remaining 3,400, he presented to his bride just before their wedding. Her response, Charlie, what did the Lord tell the rich young man to do? Sell all. Well then, we will start clear with the Lord at our wedding. He gave the rest of it away. What a man. What a woman. Here are some quotes of his that I found during the week while reading around. Many of you already know them, but I love them and I'm going to share them anyway. He said, Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Then he goes on. Only one life it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then he said, he said that the romance of a missionary is often made up of monotony and drudgery, Drudgery. <laughs> there often is no glamour in it. It doesn't stir a man's spirit or blood. So don't come out to be a missionary as an experiment. It is useless. And dangerous. Only come if you feel you would rather die than not come. Don't come if you want to make a great name or live long. Come if you feel there is no greater honour after living for Christ than to die for Him. Now I tell you, that is holiness. Those are the signs and those are the words of a man who has met with a holy God. And so has a desire for holiness, and who God by his spirit is at working increasingly to make them holy. I say, may God be at work in our hearts in this church. We can't all be CT studs, but may he be at work in us that we might grow in true holiness, that we might more and more grow into that likeness of Jesus Christ that is God's desire for his people. Let's come and pray together. Father, we come to you, and Lord, we know that you don't want your people to live superficial lives. You want us to live our lives in a way that matters. You want us, having come to know Jesus, to live our lives for Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the only hope. The only hope for our lives, the only hope for our church, the only hope for our world. Father, help us to take the message of Jesus out in mission to this community and wherever we are able to. And help us to do it in part by living lives that are worthy of Jesus, by living lives that point to Jesus, by living lives that show how wonderful the Jesus that we know is. And we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.